Hi everyone. Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schrenkman. Last time, we saw how the Norwegian Civil War went so far as to produce two warring parties, the Birkebeiner and the Bagler. That war only died down when the two sides agreed to divide Norway between themselves, with the Birkebeiner ruling in the west and the Bagler in the southeast. The Bagler party was supported by Denmark because one of the party's forerunners, Erling Skakke had promised the Danish king the control over the Oslofjord region if he would provide Erling Skakke with enough men and money to win the war. In this episode, we'll see how Denmark, that had gone through a bloody civil war of its own, managed not only to get back on its feet, but also regained enough strength to start to interfere in the affairs of others. Episode 39, Denmark Rises. The last time we talked about Denmark in any detail was back in episode 35, The Pretenders. In that episode, we saw how three Danish kings were quickly reduced to one when, at the so-called Blood Feast of Roskilde in August 1157, King Sven murdered King Knut, but only wounded King Valdemar. Valdemar managed to escape with his life, and when Sven and his army came chasing after him, he managed to hold him off long enough to gather a force of his own. In the fall, Valdemar felt strong enough to fo- face his cousin Sven, and on October 23, 1157, their armies clashed on a heath in Jutland. The battle was short, brutal, and ended with Sven's army losing. Sven tried to escape, but his horse got stuck in a swamp, and he was clubbed and hacked to death by some irate peasants. Valdemar now became king over all of Denmark, and since all the other pretenders to the Danish throne were dead, this was also the end of the Danish civil war. Valdemar could focus his efforts on consolidating his power and strengthening the country instead of fighting various relations who wanted his job. Since Valdemar was good at it, Denmark entered a phase of expansion and prosperity during his reign. In retrospect, this period would even be called the Golden Age of the Valdemars. Valdemar was the son of the murdered Knut Lavard, the second Danish royal saint by the name of Knut. Technically speaking, Knut wasn't a saint yet. He would become one officially during the reign of his son Valdemar. I'm sure I don't have to point out that his saintly status is completely dependent on the fact that his son not only managed to win the civil war, but was also successful at being king, not to mention had such excellent connections with the church. Valdemar actually never met his saintly father, because Knut Lavard was murdered before Valdemar was born. His mother Ingeborg was pregnant when Knut was ambushed and murdered, and gave birth to Valdemar only a few days after becoming a widow. Valdemar was raised in the household of a nobleman who himself, in turn, had been raised together with Valdemar's father. This nobleman had two sons of his own, Espern and Absalon. These boys, who were a few years older than Valdemar, became his foster brothers, and the boys grew up together, forming a friendship that would prove to be lifelong, not to mention very useful for all three of them. Espern was the oldest of the two, and according to Saxo Grammaticus, who was a contemporary and prone to flatter anyone in King Valdemar's good graces, he was a brave man and a valiant warrior. Espern fought with distinction in many of Valdemar's wars, and he was wounded several times, all according to Saxo. So, should we trust this? Or maybe it's just hyperbolic flattery? Well, even though we can't know for certain that Espern was good at fighting, he certainly didn't shy away from danger. We know this because modern-day archaeologists have excavated his tomb, 
and his skeleton shows signs of several healed injuries, testifying to a long martial career. Absalon was the younger of the two brothers, so since he didn't stand to inherit his father's title or lands, he did what so many other second sons from aristocratic families have done throughout history. He went for a career in the church. He studied theology in Paris for a decade, and those years happened to largely coincide with the civil war back home in Denmark. During his studies, Absalon was inspired by ideas of ecclesiastical independence from the king, ideas that were very fashionable in the church circles at the time, and would remain so, obviously. Absalon also got to know a lot of people, some of whom would later occupy key positions within the church hierarchy, helping to cultivate a close relationship between Absalon and Rome. Toward the end of the civil war, Absalon returned to Denmark. Actually, according to Saxo Grammaticus, who, you should know, wrote his chronicle Gesta Donorum at Absalon's request, it was the other way around. The civil war ended thanks to Absalon returning, because Saxo Grammaticus claims that Absalon was involved in setting up the deal that ended the civil war, where Denmark was divided in three parts, and Sven, Knut, and Valdemar were given one part each to rule. Whatever role he had in hammering out the peace deal, Absalon was present at the blood feast in Roskilde in 1157 and helped Valdemar escape the assassination attempt that rekindled the civil war and eventually led to Valdemar ascending to the throne alone, as the only surviving king of Denmark. Since Absalon and King Valdemar were old buddies, and Absalon had helped Valdemar escape death and become king, it shouldn't come as too much of a shock that Absalon would benefit from Valdemar's new position. Only a few months after Valdemar's triumph over Sven, more precisely on Good Friday 1158, the Bishop of Roskilde died, vacating a senior ecclesiastical position that came with lots of power and influence. As a thank you for all his and his family's help and friendship, Valdemar made sure that Absalon, who after all was a cleric and took an interest in ecclesiastical matters, was appointed the new Bishop of Roskilde. As bishop, Absalon did what he could to strengthen the church not least by supporting religious monastic orders that needed some place to establish new monasteries in Denmark. He also founded schools and did what he could to spread culture and knowledge in his native country that must have seemed a little rough around the edges compared to the refined society Absalon had gotten to know during his years in Paris. In 1167, Valdemar granted his foster brother and BFF Absalon a piece of land on the island of Zeeland on the Ersund Strait. Absalon founded a castle on a little islet for coastal defense against Slavic raiders who had been attacking lately. The town next to the castle supporting its logistical needs soon expanded and eventually developed into the city of Copenhagen. That's why Absalon tends to get the credit for founding the Danish capital, and in 1901 the grateful burghers of the city put up a statue of Absalon facing the islet on which he built his castle, an islet therefore very imaginatively called Castle Islet. You should go and have a look at the statue next time you're in Copenhagen. The old bishop doesn't cut a very ecclesiastical figure, and we'll get into why that is in just a moment. When the Archbishop of Lund retired in the year 1177, Absalon was appointed to succeed him. This was a great honor, of course, since the Archbishop is the top dog in the church in Denmark. Still, Absalon hesitated. The Archbishop usually resided in Lund, across the Ersund Strait in Scania, and Absalon was worried that he'd lose control over his holdings on Zealand if he left his post in Roskilde. The problem was solved by the Pope giving Absalon a special permission to remain bishop in Roskilde while also taking the new job as archbishop. 
He was officially instated as Archbishop in 1178, and he remained in that position until his death. Even though Absalon obviously took a keen interest in church matters, he was also intimately involved in the running of secular matters of state. Since he was King Valdemar's foster brother and trusted friend, he obviously had the king's ear, and it didn't hurt that Absalon had managed to get his predecessor as archbishop to agree to finally canonize Knut Lavard, King Valdemar's father, in 1170. As bishop and senior advisor to the king, Absalon was one of the most important and influential men in the kingdom, and he didn't shy away from using that influence. Luckily for the Danes, Absalon seems to have been a fairly competent politician, and so his advice usually benefited not only the king, but also the kingdom as a whole. In terms of his vision for the Church of Denmark, Absalon wanted to strengthen its financial and political independence and make sure that it would be fully integrated in the Roman Catholic Church. To achieve these goals, he helped to found all those monasteries I mentioned earlier, some even on land that had belonged to him personally. He also tried to introduce the practice of tithing in Denmark, that is having the Danes pay 10% of their income to the church. That didn't go down particularly well with the Danes, as we'll see in a bit. Absalon also thought that it was of the utmost importance to have excellent connections with Rome and the court of the Pope. He cultivated the contacts he'd made during his time in Paris and established a good rapport with the Holy See. Unfortunately, the Danish papal relations came under pressure when King Valdemar chose to side with the Holy Roman Emperor against the Pope in the schism between Pope Alexander III and the anti-Pope Victor IV. For all his preaching about ecclesiastical independence, Absalon stayed loyal to his friend, King Valdemar, and went against the position of the Vatican. But even though he was careful to preserve the United Danish Front outwardly, he counseled Valdemar against relying on the Germans and the Holy Roman Emperor. Absalon saw it as a danger to Denmark's long-term interests and independence to become too reliant on the Germans. Needless to say, Absalon was not happy with King Valdemar going along with the German demand that the Danish king swear fealty to the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, which Valdemar did in 1162. Absalon was wary of German intentions, and would have preferred King Valdemar to keep the Holy Roman Emperor at arm's length, and the Holy Roman Empire out of Danish affairs altogether. Absalon advised Valdemar to strengthen the Danish border defences to the south by adding a brick wall to the Danemerke fortification and by building castles in the south of the country. This would serve to stop an invasion from the south, but officially the measures were taken to defend Denmark against incursions by the Slavs. Slavs living along the southern shores of the Baltic Sea, in what's today northern Germany, had been taking advantage of the weakened Danish defences during the Civil War. Their raiding had become quite a nuisance along the Danish coasts, and according to some sources, as much as one-third of Danish territory was now desolated and depopulated due to these raids. Absalon had his mind set on putting a stop to it. Actually, his plans were a little more ambitious than just putting an end to the Slavic raids against Danish towns and cities. Absalon wanted to go on the offensive and spread Christianity among these Slavs, who were still pagan at the time. This would be achieved through a war against the Slavs along the Baltic seashore, spreading both Christianity and Danish control over new territories at the same time. Since he was the king's closest advisor, Absalon had all the resources of the kingdom at his disposal when he planned for his campaign, later described as a crusade. 
The bishop not only made sure to strengthen the Danish defensive positions by constructing fortifications and establishing a defensive fleet that would guard Danish waters against intruders, he also advised King Valdemar to make peace with his domestic enemies and rivals, to ensure stability within the kingdom once the war was, was underway. You don't want your enemies at home to take advantage of your absence in order to stage a coup while you're off fighting a war abroad. The first campaign against the Slavs living along the Baltic coast set out in the year 1160. This first campaign was limited in scope, not much more than a retaliatory raid as payback for all the Slavic raids against Denmark. And even though it was, on the whole, a successful affair, it didn't lead to any lasting results. It was only in 1164 that the real fighting started. Then, the first crusade against the Slavs was launched, and the war would continue on and off for 20 years. An important contingent of soldiers in the 1164 campaign was made up of members of a confraternity from Roskilde that had formed in the 1150s to defend their city against the Slavic raids. Even though it had started off as a local Roskilde organization, it would eventually attract soldiers from all over the island of Zealand. Even though it was a religious organization, it was headed by a layman, and he was eventually made governor of the town of Volgast on the Baltic Sea, when it eventually fell to the Danes. The confraternity that he led is actually only known to us thanks to Saxo Grammaticus, who wrote about this crusade. According to Saxo, the members lived very simply while out on campaign. Unlike most other soldiers, they would shun opportunities to feast on looted wine and other delicacies when they came across it. Instead, they ate little and only plain food. They even slept on their ships, at their oars, which can't have been particularly comfortable. Before battle, the members of the confraternity would make sure to go to confession, as if they were about to die, which some of them obviously did. All this pious behavior did not, however, mean that these soldiers were above looting. Not at all. But according to Saxo, they were obligated to hand over half of what they looted to the city of Roskilde, since the city funded their expedition. All in all, Saxo was very impressed by these soldiers and claims that they won many glorious victories over their pagan enemies, even when they were outnumbered two to one. In 1168, the Danish forces under Absalon's command attacked the island of Rügen, where Arkona, the main fortress of the Slavs, and uh, Charenza, the capital of one of these Slavic tribes, were located. Even though Arkona was a formidable fortress, it fell to the Danes and the locals agreed both to be baptized and to accept Danish control over Arkona. From there, Absalon and his army advanced on Charsena in the middle of the island. This was also a well-fortified town and the Danes would have been facing an almost impossible task in breaching its defenses. But the fall of Arcona had scared the garrison, so when Absalon and his men arrived, they surrendered without a fight. In what must have been quite an exhilarating and nerve-wracking event, Absalon entered the town only accompanied by the Bishop of Aarhus and 12 soldiers. They passed right through the Slavic force of 6,000 men assembled outside the walls of the city, walked through the open gates and proceeded to the temple of their god, Rugivit, with the seven heads. They tore down the wooden statue of this god, dragged it out of the temple, and burned it. Then the whole population was baptized. All according to Saxo Grammaticus, of course, who adds that Absalon founded twelve churches on the island of Rügen and made it part of his own bishopric of Roskilde. 
By now, the Slavs no longer constituted a military threat to Denmark itself, but after it had been conquered, the island of Rügen was turned into a forward base for the Danish army when they continued to make war on the Slavs, raiding and capturing even more lands along the southern Baltic coast. In 1170, King Valdemar and his buddy Bishop Absalon led a contingent of the fleet all the way past the mouth of the river Oder. Here, their luck ran out, and they were attacked by a large Slavic force at a place called the Julin Bridge, close to modern-day Volin. The Slavs had ambushed the Danes in what they hoped would be a decisive battle that would end further Danish encroachment on Slavic lands. But thanks to the fact that the Danes had brought some cavalry, they managed to defeat the Slavs and even capture and destroy yet another of their strongholds in the vicinity. In 1184, Absalon, who was in his 50s by now, participated in what was to become his last military campaign against the Slavs. An enemy army had attacked the Danish vassal of Rügen, and so, in the spring of that year, Absalon led a fleet in the defense of this Danish-controlled outpost. At Pentecost, the two fleets met off the coast of the modern-day city of Stralsund, and in the ensuing battle, the Danes won a resounding victory and Absalon could return home to Denmark as an undefeated war hero. Even though there's no doubt that Absalon was a clever politician, a capable administrator and a skilled military leader, he sometimes did encounter resistance. One such instance occurred after he'd been appointed Archbishop of Lund and decided to start pushing through various reforms. He managed to rid the Danish church of Eastern Orthodox liturgical influences that had been brought to Scandinavia from Gordoriki and instead made sure that only the Roman Catholic rite would be used in Denmark. But not all reforms were accepted quite as easily. Among the more unpopular ones was his insistence that the local peasants perform free labor for the church and that they also start paying the tithe, that is the 10% tax to the church. In response, the peasants in Scania rose in revolt in 1180. For once, Absalon was caught by surprise and unprepared. He had to flee from Lund, the seat of the archbishops, and take refuge back in his home turf in Zealand across the Ersen Strait. Soon, the rebellion spread and expanded to include protests against taxes in general, as well as the king's habit of appointing noblemen from other parts of Denmark to governors in Scania. But even though the peasants had managed to gather a large force and even won the first round against the archbishop, Absalon had no plans on giving in to their demands. Backed up by King Valdemar, Absalon returned at the head of an army and crushed the rebellion at a battle near Lund. There, Valdemar and Absalon outsmarted the peasant army, luring them into a trap when trying to cross a stream over a bridge. The king's army held the bridge, and just as the rebels forced their way onto it, the royal cavalry appeared from their flank. Any peasants who didn't manage to flee the battlefield were either killed or taken prisoners. Those who did flee were chased down by the cavalry under the command of King Valdemar personally. At this point, what was left of the rebel force surrendered en masse. They promised to start paying their taxes again, but they still pleaded with the king that it wasn't right that they should be governed by strangers, and they didn't want to pay the tithe. Valdemar agreed to implement a system where each part of the kingdom, be it Scania, Jutland or Zealand, would be governed by a local governor, but he demanded that the peasants do pay the church what it was due. A compromise was reached where the people weren't forced to pay the tithes, but instead they would have to give mandatory donations to the church that would cover the lost income from the tithes that weren't being paid. 
Soon after that, in 1182, King Valdemar died and was succeeded by his son Knut. This wasn't a very dramatic event, since Knut had been Valdemar's co-king since 1170. Back then, when Knut had been a mere child of seven years, he had been elevated to be his father's co-ruler, so this business of being king was old hat for Knut. Valdemar had even given Knut the district of Halland to govern in order to gain experience and to prepare for the job. It was important for Valdemar that Knut be seen as the obvious and only candidate to replace him, since Denmark was still an elective kingdom and some other pretender may show up and challenge Knut if he were considered unprepared, unfit or untested. But all went well and the succession passed without a glitch. Absalon remained the power behind the throne during the reign of Knut as well. If anything, he strengthened his position since he had much more experience than the young new king, and Knut valued the advice of his father's old confidant. One key example of this is how Absalon managed to push through his own line in Danish relations to the Holy Roman Empire. On the occasion of Knut's accession to the throne, a German emissary arrived in Roskilde with a message from Frederick Barbarossa. The Holy Roman Emperor expected that the new Danish king would swear fealty to the emperor, just like his father Valdemar had done. Absalon advised King Knut not to agree to this demand. Unlike his father, Knut was convinced by Absalon's argument and sent the emissary back to Germany without answering his request. This did not please the emperor, so he sent another emissary, this time with a sharper message. The Holy Roman Emperor demanded that the King of Denmark would recognize the Emperor as his overlord, or else. Perhaps worried that Knut would cave to the German demands, just like his father had done, Absalon dealt with the second emissary personally. He told him that Knut was just as sovereign as the Emperor, and the Emperor had no right to demand fealty from Denmark. Absalon probably realized that the Emperor wasn't going to be happy with his response, but maybe he hoped that they'd be able to get away with it because the Germans were busy with other struggles at the time. But Frederick Barbarossa wasn't going to accept this kind of insubordination from someone he considered to be one of his vassals. Because he was forced to tend to military matters elsewhere in the Empire, he couldn't deal with the Danes himself. But he ordered Bogislav, Duke of Pomerania in northern Germany, to invade Denmark and make Knut swear his oath. Bogislav gathered a mighty fleet of 500 ships and prepared to set sail for Denmark. When Absalon learned of this impending invasion, he immediately sent out word to Scania, Zealand and Funen, calling every available ship to muster within six days. There was no time to lose. When this more or less improvised Danish fleet had gathered, Absalon decided that offense would be the best defense, and set out with the fleet to intercept the Pomeranians at sea, before they would even have a chance to reach Danish shores. When the Danes reached Rügen, there was still no sign of the Pomeranians. This was at Easter time, so Bogislav had probably decided to postpone his attack until after the holiday, but Absalon couldn't be sure. It was tricky to keep track of an enemy fleet in the Middle Ages, and it would have been disastrous if the Pomeranians would have been able to sneak past the Danes in Rügen and reach Denmark that Absalon had left rather thinly defended when he sailed off. So Absalon sent out scouts to try and find the Pomeranian fleet. In the meantime, he prepared to celebrate Mass. It was Easter after all, and he was the Archbishop. In what must have been a dramatic scene, one of the scouts he had sent off earlier suddenly burst into the church in the middle of mass, shouting that the enemy fleet had been located, 
The Pomeranians were close by, but they hadn't been detected because of a thick fog that was shrouding the island and the surrounding sea. Absalon didn't hesitate. He interrupted the service in the middle, and is supposed to have exclaimed, Now I'll let my sword sing mass to the glory of God. The Danes boarded their ships and set off into the fog in the direction they had been told that the Pomeranian fleet was located in. But they didn't know for sure, because they could see absolutely nothing. That can be a serious issue when you're trying to locate an enemy fleet, but it also meant that the Pomeranians couldn't see them either. In the end, the Danish fleet actually managed to pull off the surprise attack. Bogislav's troops were completely unaware of the approaching danger, enjoying their Easter rest until they all of a sudden could hear the war cries of the Danes ringing out through the fog. That must have been creepy, especially since they weren't expecting to engage the enemy anytime soon. And in, in any case, they were supposed to have been on the initiative. They were the ones going to invade Denmark. But all of a sudden, here they were, caught by surprise and under attack. The Pomeranians panicked. They tried to get away, but the ships were too close to each other to be able to maneuver properly. The soldiers started to jump from ship to ship to get as far away as possible from the attacking Danes. In the ensuing chaos, eight Pomeranian ships were lost just because their crews lost their cool. The battle was more or less over before it had started. Absalon managed to capture 35 enemy ships and the rest of the Pomeranian fleet was scattered. Following the defeat, the Emperor gave up any further plans to invade Denmark and so King Knut was off the hook. But Knut then decided to counterattack, and a successful campaign against northern Germany followed. It was so successful, in fact, that in 1185, the Duke Bogislav of Pomerania was actually forced to swear fealty to King Knut, becoming a Danish vassal. Knut added King of the Vents, which was one of these Slavic peoples living in the region, to his many titles, and Danish monarchs kept using that title up until 1972, when the current queen, Margaret II, dropped it when she acceded to the throne. By the time of King Knut's successful campaign in Pomerania, Absalon had retired from active military service. He resigned his command of the armed forces the year before, in 1184, when he was 57 years old. This did not mean, however, that Absalon withdrew from politics. Not at all. He continued to be an active advisor and administrator of the expanding Danish kingdom. In 1192, in an example of actual literal nepotism, Absalon arranged for his nephew to succeed him as Bishop of Roskilde, while another nephew was made the chief advisor to King Knut. That way, Absalon tried to ensure that his family would remain closely bound up with the governing of Denmark for at least one more generation. Absalon died in 1201 at the respectable age of 73. In his will, he donated lands to various religious institutions like a pious Catholic nobleman was expected to do. He had already donated Copenhagen to the bishopric of Roskilde. His nephew, the bishop of Roskilde, moved on to succeed him as the archbishop of Lund. When Absalon died, Saxo Grammaticus still hadn't finished his magnum opus Gesta Donorum that Absalon had commissioned. But even though he didn't have any final editorial say over the content, Absalon comes out really well in Saxo's version of the 12th century Danish history. It's hard to know how much of the flattering hero portrait that Saxo paints is actually true, but since we don't have any conflicting narratives from other sources, the Gesta Donorum and its depiction of the bishop commander is generally accepted as at least close to the truth. Absalon 
has gone down in history as one of the most important Danish politicians and churchmen in the second half of the 12th century, and arguably in the Middle Ages as a whole. It's certainly true that few others shared his combined mastery of administrative, military and theological skills. As a close advisor to two kings, Valdemar and his son Knut, Absalon managed to lay the groundwork for Danish domination over the Baltic Sea that was to last for generations to come. He was also an important factor behind the Danish church aligning itself more closely with Rome, and Danish attempts at minimizing the influence of the Holy Roman Empire, not only over Denmark, but over the Baltic Sea region as a whole. Next time, we'll continue to follow the developments in Denmark as a new generation takes the reins, trying to manage Absalon's legacy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts now. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.